Well, it always feels like a special opportunity for us to be able to sing the Lord's Prayer and to just in that kind of way. So I'm, I'm grateful that we uh, had that opportunity, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're newer around here, we are so pleased that you've come. And uh, we hope already that you're sensing God's presence in a very real way. I'm going to be speaking in just a moment from the book of Ephesians. So if you want to open up your Bible or if you need to uh, take a peek at the table of contents, you'll find near the end of the New Testament a little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And we will be in chapter 6. We started back in January a verse-by-verse movement through that letter. And uh, we're going to conclude our uh, series in Ephesians today. And we'll be doing so as we talk about how we get ready for battle. Because we are in a battle, whether or not we know that. Uh, I also noted a moment ago we were singing about the power of the blood of Jesus. And if you are newer to the Christian faith, and we just do this several minute long Reflection on the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. You're going, what is this? Well, we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and died an atoning death for us. And in his shedding of his blood, forgiveness of sin was purchased for us. And so we celebrate that. We're going to celebrate it even more on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. And if you've not been around here to be a part of our Good Friday service, I really want to strongly encourage you to make plans to be with us. It's a, uh, the most different kind of service we do all year. It's a very dark service because we relive uh, and reflect on the events of the Friday of the crucifixion of Christ. And so it's a, kind of a, a grievous, painful uh, movement through what did Jesus do for us, and uh, if you've not been a part of that, we encourage you to be with us. We'll have the Lord's Supper that night, and then on Easter morning, uh, we'll have a terrific time of celebrating his resurrection, and one of the ways that we'll celebrate is with baptism and the marking of how Christ has been recently saving and redeeming those that uh, are our friends in, in the room with us today. And if you're one of those and you think you might be ready to take that step of discipleship, be sure you uh, mark that on your connection card or see me after the service so that we can uh, have that ready for you. All right. Before we get into the scriptures, let's pray. Would you bow with me? So, Father, we have sought to welcome your presence with praise and worship. We confess how much we need you, how undone we are without you, and what grateful recipients we are of saving grace and sanctifying grace. Continue to have your will and your way with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's uh, test your ancient history for just a moment. How many of you recall a guy by the name of Archimedes? Yeah, look at you guys. And you'll recall that uh, he was about the 3rd century B.C., that uh, 
a mathematician, a scientist, uh, an author. He was quite the guy, and, and amongst the things that he became known for uh, was his kind of defining the whole matter of leverage. And he's the guy that uh, said, if you give me a place to stand, I'll move the world. And, of course, he was talking about being able to place a rod on top of some kind of object and you'd be able to move a heavier object with the power of leverage. So when you understand uh, where he's coming from and kind of the scientific point that he's trying to make, uh, you get it. But on the other hand, it's a little bit of a silly comment to make. I can move the world if I just have the right place to stand because there is no place to stand for you to try and uh, make such a leveraged move. However, for those of us that know God because of a relationship with Him that we have through Jesus Christ, literally, give us a place to stand and we will move and change the world. And if anybody got that, I think you would have acknowledged that. So maybe we've got a lot of work to do today. We are uh, looking in Ephesians chapter 6, so hopefully you have that passage. We're going to begin reading in verse 10. And what we're going to find is that the Apostle Paul is going to exhort us to stand. And to specifically stand upon God by the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. And he's going to say this in rather militaristic terms. He's going to say, stand on God, stand with God, stand for God by suiting up with the armor of God. Now, we're going to read the text, and as we do, I want you to look for these various aspects of how we stand on God. And he's going to attach it to armament. But he's going to be talking about truth. He's going to be talking about righteousness. He's going to be talking about readiness. He's going to be talking about faith. He's going to be talking about salvation. He's going to be talking about the Word of God. You can already see we've got a lot to talk about. This is an entire series that we could do, and we're going to uh, do it all in just a few minutes here. So you're going to have to listen quickly, right? So here we are in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Pick it up at verse 10. As he's concluding this letter, he says, Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. He's going to say it one more time. Verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And he also adds, oh, by the way, keep praying for me, too. So let's uh, back up and talk about this for just a few minutes and unpack a little bit of it. As you may recall, we've said it several times in this series, when Paul writes this correspondence to uh, Christians, to the church that's in the mega city of Ephesus, he's currently at that time in prison himself. And so it's part of what we've come to call his prison correspondence, where he had written various letters to various churches during that time. And the speculation is, is that while he was uh, incarcerated day after day and having a Roman guard outside of uh, his imprisonment, that uh, at some point, as God's speaking to him and guiding him about writing churches, he, he takes note of this Roman guard and God begins to speak to him about the armament of that guard. And he's like, tell my people, I want them to be suited up in armor in a very similar kind of way. And so he begins to take that picture that would have been very common to a reader in his day and unpack some biblical truths regarding how to stand with God, for God, against evil, against an enemy, against the devil. Now, let me just say that if uh, you've been able to track with us all these weeks and we've been talking about these wondrous things that God has done and is doing for us. You know, he has uh, approached us as his enemy and through the work of Christ reconciled us to himself, forgiven us of sin, atoned us from sin, uh, adopted us as sons and daughters, made us his children, uh, made us heirs of all kinds of blessings, all kinds of promises, all kinds of uh, kingdom activity in us. On and on and on we could go. And, and then uh, as we got into this over the last couple of weeks, how all of that begins to play out through us, through all kinds of relationships. It plays out in how you uh, conduct your marriage. It plays out in how you uh, do your parenting or how you relate to your parents. It, it plays out in how you uh, conduct yourself in a workplace, either as an employee or as an employer. If you contend for any of the things that we've been talking about over these weeks, you will not get a whole lot of pushback from the culture that is around us. I mean, you can talk about your sinful nature and what God's done to kind of handle that problem and reconcile you to himself. And, you know, they may nod a little bit, maybe smile a little bit, maybe even a little condescendingly and go, well, I'm glad that kind of works for you. And that uh, religion has become that kind of helpful crutch to you. And, um, oh, you think God wants you to conduct yourself in relationships in that way? Well, OK, I hope that works for you. Just kind of. Be sure and keep that to yourself, because after all, faith is a very private thing. And so there won't be a whole lot of pushback from the culture on all the things that we've been talking about up until this point. Up until this point. Because now we're going to talk about truth. And Paul looks at that Roman soldier and he says, truth is kind of like the belt 
that that soldier wears. And as you know, uh, oftentimes they had a skirt that would either go right to or below the knees or even on further down, depending on the circumstance. And uh, what the soldier would do in a time of battle is he would gather up the skirt and tuck it in the belt, girded with the belt, and Paul says, of truth. In other words, there is a, a liberty, there's a freedom that comes for you to be able to take a stand with me and to fight when you're girded with the belt of truth, which absolutely raises the question, what's truth? That was the question that Pilate asked Jesus, right? It's the thing that Jesus said the Spirit comes to show you and to ground you in truth. Jesus went on to say in John's Gospel, that when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And, of course, then he kind of slammed that dividing line down in the middle of this world and said, by the way, I am the truth. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. So the minute that you begin to stand on truth, friend, you will get pushed back in our world and in our culture, and from an invisible enemy, additionally. And that happens in a number of ways. One is the whole uh, relativistic uh, philosophy, that everything is relative. There are no absolutes. And so if you want to talk about something being truth, well, maybe, maybe it was truth at this point and in this time and in that circumstance. But relatively speaking, it wouldn't be truth in all circumstances and in all cases, because there are no absolutes. And of course, we've talked about that around here before, right? To make an absolute statement that there are no absolutes is a little bit silly. But nevertheless, they press on. Uh, so there's not only relativism, but there's subjectivism. In other words, truth is subjective to my perception. And I'm the one that determines when I look at this or when I look at that, that's true, that's not true. So there's relativism and there's subjectivism. And another factor that weighs into all this is what we might call deconstruction. There is a prevalent way of thinking today that says, you know, everything that we have handed down to us in historical archives were shaped by that which was most powerful in its day. Whatever the ruling person or the ruling party of its day was shaped what has been left with us historically so you have to deconstruct that. You have to take it apart so that you can actually get to what the truth was back then and not what the ruling power of the day said truth was. Are you following me? So uh, today you can begin to read through your kids' uh, American history books and you will begin to see things that are portrayed differently than the history book you had when you were a kid when you were in school. Because these things are being deconstructed and reconstructed in a way that suits people today. And not surprisingly, the piece that's being removed and reshaped and restated are all the faith pieces that were part of the founding of this country. But take it all the way back to the time of the scriptures. And there is a movement today to deconstruct the scriptures and to say, you know, here's what really was going on there. Here's what you really need to understand. And you can take a story out of the Old Testament, like David and Jonathan, who are described as having this unusual 
brother kinship kind of thing. They loved each other deeply and, and had a covenant with one another about how they would care for one another's families for the rest of their lives if something happened to one or the other. And the current way of thinking today is to deconstruct that, go back and say, you know what? See, that's why gay relationships are okay. It was happening all the way back there then. David and Jonathan were, were gay and loved each other like gay people do today. So, friend, unless you begin to understand that there is a battle going on over what is truth and who is the one that determines and defines truth, you'll just be kind of caught up in a current that's just moving down the course of time. And the scriptures admonish us, don't get caught up and just move down with the current of time. Take a stand. Don't get knocked over by what is going on in the world around us. Gird yourself with truth. And, of course, one of the ways that we get at the truth is through the scriptures. We understand, we believe them to be divinely inspired. That is to say, God breathed. God was the ultimate author. He used human hands to do some writing and some uh, containing of it. But it's his word and it's his truth that he discloses to us. And that's why we're told that it's good for correcting and reproving and training us because it is God-breathed. It's dependable. It's authoritative. Well, he goes on to talk about then the breastplate of righteousness. And you understand that a breastplate is something that covers the chest and therefore covers vital organs. And when you're in battle, those vital organs are pretty vital. So you've got to protect the lungs. You've got to protect the heart and so on. And he says the protection that the follower of Christ has is righteousness. Now, what we have to be reminded of is that righteousness is not something that you and I can achieve. It's not something that we can work for and develop in our lives. Righteousness is something that God does to and for those of us that have begun to put our faith into Christ. Now, here's the reality. We all have a condition called sin. That condition, it's a heart condition, produces a number of behaviors, a number of ways of thinking, a number of ways of acting called sins, S-I-N-S. When we start talking about dealing with our sins, we cannot lose the fact of the matter that this isn't just behavior modification. This isn't just how do I become a better person? How do I become a more moral person? person. But rather, the the question is, how do I uh, change a nature that is sin so that it becomes a nature that is righteous? And the only way that happens is that God comes into your life and he begins to slay. He begins to kill the old nature and replace it with the righteousness of Christ. And the Bible talks about that being imputed to you. He begins to impute to you the righteousness of Christ in place of the sin of your nature. And you go, well, what's the big deal about all that? See, Paul is saying, unless you understand that you're at war, 
that there is a battle going on around you all the time. And it's not just uh, in this invisible um, culture of mores and folkways, ways of thinking and conducting yourself, but it's also a spiritual thing. Unless you understand that, you'll just kind of go along and get along with all of that and be caught up in it. And so, you know, even today I'm in my car, I'm driving all uh, over here. I kind of got some thoughts running through my head about what will happen during, you know, this time in the service. And all of a sudden I'm assaulted with thoughts and feelings. Who are you to stand on a platform today? Who are you to open up a holy book and, and say, holy things, you're, you're pretty unholy and I began to have flash in my mind, you know, this action, this thought, this attitude, this behavior. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a pretty sorry individual. I'm a pretty busted person. Of course, I've said that to you many times. And there's never been any question in your mind about the reality of that. <laughs> but the rest of the story is this. At that point, God's saying now. All this is happening because I want you to remember, you've got to put on the belt of truth. Yes, you are a sinful, busted, broken person that has no right, uh, no wherewithal to represent me or take a stand for me, except for I am saving you, I am redeeming you, I am transforming you, I am imputing righteousness to you, I'm slaying that sin nature in you. And so in that moment, I had to put on the belt of truth. I had to put on the breastplate of righteousness in order to just drive into the parking lot here and get out to come in and do what we're doing right now. You see how we're talking about this plays out. And then Paul goes on to talk about having shoes for the readiness that is necessary to share the good news of the gospel of peace. Now, if you've ever been to a fire station, uh, maybe you've gone with your kids, you know, for them to have the field trip, or maybe you went a long time ago as a kid. Uh, but I can recall going in where uh, the firemen uh, sleep and, and have their time in between fires and that kind of thing. And all of them had their gear uh, lined up so that, you know, if an alarm went off, they just went over, stepped right in those boots, pulled that suit right up, strapped on those things and jumped into a truck and they took off. That's the kind of readiness that Paul's talking about. Military people have to keep their boots, if you will, ready and handy so that they can get into them quickly at the sound of uh, the note to get into battle. Be prepared, he says. Be ready for the gospel of peace. Of course, gospel means good news. What's the peace thing all about? Well, he's not talking about how he's going to come and make all of life's storms cease. All of life's waves to be smooth. All of life's roses to be without thorns. But rather, he's saying, you were one time enemies with God. You were one time at odds with God. You were at one time going to be on the wrong side of God, the wrath of God, rather than the love and the blessing of God. And Christ has made peace between you and the holy God. That's good news. And every time God is at work in you in blessing kinds of ways, rather than judging and condemnation kinds of ways, 
be ready to talk about that. Be ready to share that good news. Be, be ready to share what God can mean to other people. So I'm in a conversation with somebody this past week, and the conversation turns from the business that we were conducting to personal and a little bit of story comes out, and the story is filled with pain. The story is filled with some abuse and some really dark stuff. And right then, God brought to my mind a story from one of you that you've given me permission to share. And I shared a little bit about how God has met you at that same kind of point and how God has met me at that same kind of point. And right then and there, sharing good news in a dark moment because of readiness. He's like, take a stand for me. Take a stand with me. Be, be ready to talk about how good I am and how much good stuff I'm doing all around. So let me just take a time out and ask you, have you had a prayer answered this week? Has God showed up for you somehow, some way, at some point? Has your connection with him brought you a sense of confidence or hope or serenity. See, all of that's good news. And so acknowledging that, kind of settling that in your heart, that's one of the reasons why we journal. Maybe having written some of that, you're in a conversation, and all of a sudden, boom, you have the opportunity to share good news and take a stand against all the bad news that our enemy is all the time at work about. And then he talks about the shield of faith. Now, faith is not me flexing my muscles and I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe. I'm not going to doubt, I'm not going to doubt, I'm not going to, that, that's not faith. That's in the flesh kinds of stuff. Faith is a gift. And when you begin to uh, believe the gospel and begin to trust in Jesus, then he begins to bestow faith on you. He gives you a capacity to begin to believe who he is and believe what he says. So that then everything begins to take place in you by faith. He saves you by faith. He reconciles you by faith. He justifies you by faith. He sanctifies you by faith. He leads you into a marriage by faith. He, he guides you into a career by faith. You make geographic moves by faith. Everything begins to happen by faith. What's a shield? Well, a shield is something that's supposed to protect, right? To ward off blows from the enemy that could fell me. Now, remember who wrote this. This is Paul. This is the guy who says in a letter to the Corinthians, I have been beaten with rods. I have been stoned with rocks until they thought I was dead. I have been lashed with a whip. I have been imprisoned multiple times. I have been shipwrecked. On and on the list goes, right? And you're going... Buddy, I don't think that shield face working too good for you. There's a whole lot that didn't get protected there, right? Unless the protection that the shield of faith brings is not in those kinds of physical manifestations. The shield of faith is not going to protect you from sickness. I know 
There are a lot of television ministries and really, you know, sharp-looking, slick-looking kinds of guys telling you, if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick. If you have enough faith, you'll never lack for money. If you have enough faith, you'll have, you know, this palatial kind of place, and you'll drive the kind of car I drive, and you'll have a ring like I have, and all this kind of stuff. And all I can tell you, friends, is that that is heresy. That is not truth. Because you look at somebody like the Apostle Paul, who was a man filled with faith, and he has all kinds of calamity breaking on his life all the time. Now, the way the shield of faith works is this. You come to a point of failure in your life, and the shield of faith guards your heart against cynicism. Something is extremely disappointing. And the shield of faith guards your heart against bitterness. Something is excruciatingly painful. And the shield of faith guards your heart against despair and quitting. Or something is gloriously successful. And the shield of faith guards you against pride and haughtiness. See, there's something way more important than your body or than your money and your possessions, and that is your soul. And the shield of faith guards your soul. He goes on to say, be sure you got on that helmet of salvation. Now, that's, that's more than make sure you're saved. Make sure you're going to heaven someday when you die. Okay, that's kind of how we minimize the whole salvation piece. But salvation is way more broad, way more involved than sins forgiven, go to heaven someday when you die. Salvation is a way of seeing God in a way of seeing life so that there's hope. So there's a sense of confidence. There is a sovereign God on the throne. He is at work. As, as crazy, as busted, as depraved as everything around me can be, he is still going to be at work and is still going to come out in a way that is right and sane and full of life. So, uh, you know, I'm a 22-year-old pastor at a small church in West Tennessee. And one day one of my ladies calls me up and says, uh, I wonder if you'd go by the hospital and visit with Wilma. She, uh, you know, has got a lot of problems. She's made a lot of mistakes. She really doesn't have anybody in her life that cares about her. She's got a 13-year-old son, and that's about all she has in her life. Would you go by and, and visit with her? So I went by and visited with her. One thing led to another, and I tried to encourage her and try to help her about this or that or the other. And a few months went by after she'd gotten out of the hospital, and she called me up one day, and she said, My dad has died. You're the only pastor I know. Would you do his funeral? I said, well, sure, I'll do his funeral. And it was my first funeral. And so I began to, you know, do a little homework about how I'm going to do this funeral and come to find out her dad had died of a heart attack while with a prostitute. Well, how, how do you do that funeral? And somehow God gave me grace to go through that, and we got that done. Uh, a little bit uh, after that, I was able to lead Wilma to Christ. And she, by God's grace, was able to leave a life of herself selling her body. But her body was so busted and so spent 
It was in a, a few months she got sick again, and she died. Her brother, whom I had not met, came and approached me and said, you know, apparently you meant a whole lot to my sister. Would you do her funeral? So I do her funeral, and through that I get to know him a little bit. He's got three little kids, like 11, 9, and 7. And I say, hey, would it be all right if I pick up your kids and take them to church on Sundays? Oh, yeah, sure, if that's what you want to do. If they want to go, they can go with you. So every Sunday for a couple of years, Sherry and I would go by and pick up these kids, take them to church, and then take them home afterwards. And he was married to a woman who had been in and out of mental hospitals and mental institutions for for some time. And so most of the time when I would take the children from church and take them back home and they would get out of my car to go up into their house, she would come running out of the door with her hand made in the gesture of a gun, and she would be shooting me and, and killing me every time I would drop off her kids. Fast forward a little bit to my next church, which was in West Kentucky, and uh, got involved with one of the families there who had a 30-something adult kid living at home, really struggling with a lot of things, who ultimately committed suicide. How do you do that funeral? How do you walk with that family at that point? Not too long after that, I had a, a man who frequented our church from time to time get involved with a woman in his office, and her husband came after him with a gun to kill him. How do you mediate pay, peace at that point? A young single mom who had had a one-night stand and got pregnant decided that she just could not have another child in her life and so performed a home-style abortion on herself and became a quadriplegic because of how that transpired. Businessman whose partner embezzled hundreds of thousands out of the business and then fled the country left him holding the bag of bankruptcy and busted dreams. I could tell you about alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sex addiction. I could talk to you about, you know, these brutalized situations, beatings, incarcerations, family, friends, abusing children, on and on go. All this before I'm 30. I I haven't even got to Washington yet telling you these stories. Are you with me? My point is this, friends. We live in a broken, busted, sick, dark, painful world. And if you're going to take a stand for God and if you're going to be in the middle of His activity, that's the kind of stuff you're going to be around all the time. He's not going to sanitize your circumstances and spare you these things. He's going to put you right in the middle and the heart of these things because you're his agent. You're his ambassador. You're the means by which he's going to make a difference in a lot of these situations. And unless you have the helmet of salvation on that says there is a hope in the middle of all this insanity, there's hope. And to look at people who are racked with pain and crying and say there's hope. Hope and know that and believe that and be convicted by that. He says, put on that helmet of salvation. Hold up that shield of faith and guard your heart. No, you're not worthy in and of yourself, but I'm imputing righteousness to you. Put on that breastplate. Live in the truth. Be ready to display and to share that good news at any point. And by all means, know how to use your sword. 
which the scriptures say is the word of God. Now, there is we can do a whole series on what's the word of God. And just briefly, the word of God refers to Jesus on one hand. We could do a whole series just on what does it mean for Jesus to be the Word of God. But let me move on to say the Word of God is also described as the decrees that God makes. God just simply speaks and decrees and boom, something comes to pass. Genesis 1. He speaks, let there be light. Boom, there's light. Let there be a universe. Boom, there's this whole universe. Let there be trees. Let there be rivers. Let there be oceans. You know, boom, boom, boom. They, they all come to pass because he decrees it. Then there are those times where he simply addresses. He speaks to an Adam, to Noah, to Abram, to Moses, to David, to Paul. And then there is... Those times where he takes an individual and decrees or addresses the individual and uses that individual to decree or address other individuals. And we've got a whole uh, body of material in the Bible where God has used prophets and preachers as mouthpieces for himself. And then there's the the written word, the book, the scriptures that, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, are said to be God-breathed, authoritative, dependable, useful for correction, for reproving, for training, etc. Now, friends, whenever I, I talk about this, someone always asks, you know, I never... I never hear God the way you're talking about. God kind of like speaks into our lives and speaks into this world. Uh, I, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. I've gone to a small group. I've gone to a Mike's class or whatever. And I, I'm still, the Bible just kind of remains a closed book. I, I just get bored and sidetracked and confused. And I just don't know what to do with it. Well, friend, all I can say to you is that you're approaching it in the wrong kind of way. You may be approaching it like a newspaper. You may be approaching it like a novel. You may be approaching it like some other, you know, literature. But you've got it open to Ephesians 6. Just turn a page and look at Philippians 1. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, stop. What's it mean to be a servant? And if servants of Christ, Christ is a master, what's it mean for Christ to be a master? And if I am going to be a follower of Christ and therefore I'm a servant of him as a master, what kind of servant am I? Good one or bad one? Reflect back to chapter 5 and 6 in Ephesians. I'm a servant unto the master as I deal with my wife or as a wife deals with her husband, as I deal with my children, as I respond to my parents, as I deal with an employer, as I deal with those that I supervise. I'm his servant in each one of those circumstances. How's that being played out? And as I reflect on these things, thoughts come into my mind 
And God begins to point out scenarios to me. I'm, remi- I'm reminded of this. I'm reminded of that. That happened well. That didn't happen so well. And because I have a sheet of paper out, or what's even better, a journal, where I'm doing this consistently, page after page, I record these kinds of things down. Friend, just in ten minutes, half of a verse, the Word of God has come alive to me, both off the written page and in a prayerful kind of exchange. This is not rocket science. This is not hard. This is not impossible. This is God's means to deal with us effectively. He is fully invested in this process of communicating with us. And I don't say that to harp or to criticize or or to be condescending at all. I'm just saying... If, if you've got some kind of consideration that this is really hard and can't be done, then I would just say to you that's deception. Because it's not. So, Paul says, suit up. The guy who had been beaten and whipped and stoned and shipwrecked and so on said, you've got to understand, this is not against flesh and blood. This is not against people. This is against an invisible world. A whole system that is marked by the devil and evil. Ways of thinking, ways of uh, believing, ways of behaving. And we are in war every day. So every day, suit up. Put on truth. Put on righteousness. Put on faith. Put on readiness. Put on salvation and hope. Wield the Word of God. And uh, several of us uh, have this testimony that when we wake up in the morning, before we get out of bed, we reflect on Ephesians 6, 10 and following and kind of mentally, Lord, putting on truth. Lord, putting on righteousness. Lord, putting... Before you even get out of bed to carry that kind of mentality. So, let me ask you. This whole kind of thing is a God thing. Whereby He comes in and upon your life, begins to cause you to come alive into Him, and do this transforming thing in you. Will you cooperate with that? If you are being stirred In any way about that right now, that's God's Spirit stirring in you. That's God's tug upon your heart to draw near. And He wants to meet you with grace and power and blessing and transformation. Would you say yes to that? On the back side of that card, that connection card that was referenced earlier today, there's a little space that says, I want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. Well, let me encourage you to check that then. That will come directly to my attention. And I'll be glad to pray for you. I'll be glad to follow up with you in whatever way works for you. All right? But would you suit up? If Christ is in your heart and in your life, will you kind of get out of the current of the culture? Take a stand. 
by His grace and by His power, by His armament. Will you engage in the battle? The battle for truth, the battle for souls, the battle for the kingdom of God's expansion. Pray with me together, okay? Would you bow your head one more time? Friends, I'm praying for you right now that God give us fresh vision about His power, about His might, about His capabilities. This is not flesh and blood. This is not just you and me. This is the Lord God Almighty. So, Lord, would you just take this moment and and refresh and remind us what a big God you are, what a great God you are, what a fearsome God, a, a powerful God, one who is able to dispel darkness, defeat evil, overcome whatever opposition there is. We are your people. We belong to none other. We will stand by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.